I'm Jack Semlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2017 Strip-Till Farmer Podcast Series. Today's program, Regenerating Soils to Strengthen Your Strip-Till System, is being brought to you by Totally Tubular Manufacturing. And if this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series. Currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if there's another app you prefer for listening to podcasts, let us know. We'll make an effort to get it added here as well. And by subscribing, that will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to Totally Tubular Manufacturing for their support of today's program. Totally Tubular planter application products provide precise placement of starter fertilizer below the seedbed to optimize nutrient uptake and effectiveness. Awarded No-Till Farmers Fertilizer Application Product of the Year four years straight, Totally Tubular systems are durable, dependable, and deliver accurate placement of starter fertilizer to complement your fertilizer management strategies. Visit them today at totally-tubular.net for more information or call them today at 888-200-3012. And for a limited time, you can receive a 15% discount on full registration to attend the 2017 National Strip Tillage Conference, courtesy of Totally Tubular. Visit striptillfarmer.com tubular to take advantage of this special offer available to listeners until June 30th. While the term regenerative agriculture may sound a bit ambiguous at first, but it's a proven practice which over time can increase organic contributions to soil health and yield goals. Operating his family's 200-year-old farm in Mazeppa, Minnesota, Strip-tiller Rod Summerfield is a passionate advocate for taking a natural approach to restoring the production capacity of his soils. But one of the barriers to understanding and embracing regenerative agriculture is recognizing the symptoms of declining soil health. As Summerfield says, many farmers never realize there's a problem because they've never farmed healthy soils. In today's Strip-till Farmer podcast, Rod shares his experience adopting regenerative practices with a long-term goal of producing 300 bushel corn and 100 bushel soybeans with 100% of the nitrogen and most of the other nutrients coming from nature. North of Rochester, Minnesota, my grandfather purchased the property where our building set on in in 1892. Our farm has been operated by a summer field ever since. The transfer to the fourth generation uh, officially began a couple years ago when we changed the business entity to a partnership and made my son here a one-third partner in Sunnyfield Farms Partnership. Rick is now the principal operator and every day takes over more of the management. The partnership purchased some new land in the fall of 2013 and we've been using regenerative agricultural management to transition this new ground soils back to natural tilth. Oh, uh, this should take about 40 minutes. So if I say something you don't understand, we can do questions during the thing. You don't have to wait to the end. I'd rather you get the understanding. 
Okay, we were mostly a livestock operation, farrow to finish and cow through finish with several employees until livestock prices crashed in the 90s. We could no longer afford to help, so we changed to corn and soybean crop farm. To farm the steeper ground like this former pasture, we tried no-till to control erosion. A couple years later, we started strip-tilling corn for applying fertilizer, as I did not like broadcasting fertilizer on the soil surface. We now seldom get rain runoff from our fields that have transitioned to natural tilth. Using no-till and strip-till, along with other regenerative agricultural management principles, we have restored the health of our field soils. Some of our A-horizon soils are significantly deeper now than they were even 200 years ago. There is little evidence of erosion in our fields, even on steep slopes. This is the strip-till bar we use. We just want to lift the soil enough to put the fertilizer under the row while not blending out the O-horizon with the deeper soil. In soils that have already transitioned back to natural tilth, the soil doesn't have a need for man's tillage to provide pore space for air, water, or root growth. When using this tool, we consider it a precision nutrient placement tool, not a tillage tool. The red poly around the shank helps keeps wet soils from sticking and slides the knife through the soil without much disturbance. It also protects the stainless steel drop tubes from wear. When farming new ground that has yet to transition to natural tilth, we will likely strip till every year to help provide necessary tilth, and while keeping all residue on the surface to aid humus creation. We will strip till every year until we see the soil's new organic matter levels have risen and the natu natural aggregation has begun, and then we'll start alternating strip till and no-till. This is the variable rate air cart we use. While it can hold up to seven ton of dry fertilizer in the back two tanks, uh, we often don't fill it if, if we have a wet spring to, to try and not give compaction from that. Uh, dry fertilizers we, we will use are 184600060 and AMS along with mostly urea. And if we use urea, we always have to put a little bit of 060 in to uh, keep it flowing into the meters that, the, that it doesn't uh, run too thin. Um, if a soil test's real low in potassium, we usually put the potassium on before, we'll strip tail before soybeans and put it on before soybeans rather than uh, you know, putting on very much potassium with corn at, in the same area as the urea. The only time I recall that we ever strip-tilled without pulling footer fertilizer down was uh, the fertilizer came from the uh, ag partners there and uh, we couldn't get it to even fall straight down. It was so wet, it was just, we had to take it out and broadcast. That was the only way we could get it on the ground. When we do have runoff, it will come flow down the grass waterways like spring water and on many of our fields, we have oil horizons that um, they're just like a little ground is covered with a sponge. Uh, the rain will hit it and it won't even bounce off, the, off of it. Within 15 minutes, all, the clear water that's on the surface will soak right into the ground. And uh, this, because of the creation of soil organic matter, 
these topsoils or horizons will not suspend in water. Uh, ten reasons we strip till, and I guess I just have freedom to you. Precision placement and rate when using dry fertilizer. Fertilizer abandoned beneath the row. Fertilizer not exposed to environment. Clear seed bed with residue between the rows. Darker soil strips aid soil warming, not blending out the surface or horizon. Uh, we've tested for fuel, and we normally we use about 0.9, but up to a gallon of diesel an acre to strip. Uh, like I said, we'll use uh, strip till to transition soils to natural till. Uh, we've found that we can have up to two inches of rainfall overnight, and we'll be spraying. If we have to spray chemicals, we'll be spraying four or five o'clock in the afternoon because this soil goes down and, the, and it dries out. Go ahead. What's your rotation? Corn and soybean. We'd like a third crop, and we keep looking for one. Uh, our area was, used to be wheat milling. That's what our town was created as, a wheat milling. And when head scab come in, it just destroyed the local economy. So uh, we have, we're a very rainy area where we are. I mean, the other, that's the way it is. And residue between the rows like composted, like a composted windrow with the earthworms turning over the compost. Tillage is a short-term fix of oxygen that mineralizes carbon and degrades soil structure. Without new soil organic matter, soils become unable to breathe. Healthy soils need to function like your lungs. Exhausting spent biologic gases and taking in fresh oxygen to maintain an aerobic environment for growth. Oxygen is also essential for decomposition to complete. If decomposition doesn't finish, new humus is not available to provide the necessary biochemistry for natural soil structure. Strong negative charges are needed to form microaggregates. When natural aggregates cannot form, the soil requires more tillage to physically create pore space for root development, air and soil, or air and water to be in, held in the soil. The soil, in a sense, becomes addicted to more tillage. Rain cannot infiltrate, and the cell walls of roots will rupture if they grow into an anaerobic environment where oxygen is less than 10%. Hard pans are not so much impenetrable to roots as water holding barriers where no oxygen, with no oxygen where roots die when they enter. We had been looking to go twin row for some time as a friend of ours designed one of the first ones and kept telling us of all the advantages. We are happy with twin row and feel strip till and twin row are made for each other. Some liquid fertilizer and a molasses product are put down when planting. For soybeans, we like twin row better than our old 15 inch splitter planter, but I can't tell you that there's a yield advantage. It just seems to work better planting between the rows with twin row. Here's corn planted at 38,000 population in twin rows. Uh, we did population checks at this time, and they varied from 36 to 38,000 plants uh, at this size, uh, with about 37,000 average at this time. Uh, this cornfield has received no herbicide. None of our cornfields had received any herbicide at this stage, and I think that's pretty decent weed control with no burn down, no herbicide to this stage. It got sprayed. I think that day with Caprino and some dicamba and like half pound atrazine and 
completely clean. Uh, here's a corn plant dug from the same field July 1st. Increased root mass is one of the reasons we like strip till. We have dug plants in mid-August where roots go down over 60 inches and the washed mass is hard to fit in a five gallon pail. Uh, unless our backhoe is on, it's impossible to get all the roots without tearing them off. We have also been finding twin rows can significantly increase stock diameter of, of the corn plant. I mean, that's a, a sheetrock square and you can see, I think if you ever notice them, that, that's a pretty thick plant there. It's almost like your wrist. And that, that's an average plant. That's not an anomaly. I mean, that, that's what most of the plants look like. I mean, there is some smaller, but most of them have really thick stalks. We usually soil test every other year following soybeans and before corn. Man management zones are tested and managed individually. Uh, we now take samples to a 12-inch depth where we you know, used to take 6-inch cores because uh, strip-till fertilizer is placed deeper and we're growing our soil downward. So we want, uh, our roots are growing downward so we're accessing more of the ground. Our long-term goal is to be producing 300 bushel corn and 100 bushel soybeans with 100% of the nitrogen coming from nature and most of the other nutrients also. This uh, diagram comes from the Minnesota Department of Agriculture's Nutrient Management. Uh, they talk about 43% of the nitrogen in solution coming from mineralization of residue, 5% uh, from atmospheric lightning, 8% on average comes from legumes, 11% from manure, and 33% from the application of fertilizer. Their position is you can't manage or manipulate mineralization, and we're totally on the opposite side of that. Uh, we feel that regenerative agriculture is about managing mineralization. Uh, I guess I'll talk. Mineralization, uh, regeneration about managing mineralization of, of plant residue carbon. With each thousand pounds of carbon that is put back in the soil as soil organic matter, 100 to 120 pounds of organic nitrogen is also sequestered. Much of the nitrogen that causes environmental problems and groundwater especially, we believe is the mineralization of residue nitrogen at a time and amount when the crop can't utilize it. If one considers mineralization legumes and atmospheric end from lightning, all as natural sources, then 56% of the nitrogen in the soil solution comes from nature. Regenerative management is a big help in having nitrogen become soluble when the plant most has a need and use it instead of being in solution during a time when low nitrogen use and loss to the environment. With all residue on the surface between the rows, while the applied nitrogen fertilizer is below the row, this keeps them separate, reducing losses of purchased nitrogen to the carbon penalty. When picking corn, we tried to leave as much of the stalk still standing as possible by running the corn hen close to the ear. We have learned to do this because in the spring, the ground will be drier and warmer for no-till or strip-tilled soybeans planted between the rows. Standing till the fall harvest, the high carbon corn stalks are now, now go through the combine when harvesting beans are blended with the soybean straw coming out of the chopper. The residue mat coming out behind the combine is a complete natural blend of fresh and old residue 
with an almost perfect carbon-nitrogen ratio for field composting. A lot of people say you can't build soil during the soybean phase of a corn soybean thing. We feel we build as much soil during soybeans as we do during corn, but we do it with that high carbon. We get the carbon-nitrogen in that 25 to 1 to 50 to 1 ratio by doing it this way. Uh, this is an old nit nitrate kit we used in the 70s. Uh, we test the soil a foot deep when the corn was about a foot tall and then decided if we needed to be side dressing. Uh, we haven't done this for a while. Uh, this is a SLAN organic nitrogen test. It is used to estimate how much organic nitrogen you have in the soil. The soil sample is mixed in a jar with a sodium hydroxide solution and releases the ammonia in the sample. It causes a color probe to change in color. This test is fairly easy to do and a 25 sample pack of these is about $300 and they'll keep in the refrigerator for about a year. We don't do this a lot anymore because practically all our tests came back the same dark blue that we, you know, we were getting the same results so we kind of quit doing it. Uh, a year ago in June, we had 20 inches of rain. So though we were testing real high dark blue early in June, well in fact We'll, we'll talk about a, a MDA study we did from cover crops. That nitrogen all denitrified with that much water in the soil. This is by far the easiest and fastest method. Just hold it a couple feet above the corn and walk along the row. You need to have an area of high nitrate corn to use as a comparison. We are still trying to learn how to best interpret the numbers, but can see where if you were looking to side dress nitrogen on all your corn, Having a couple of these units mounted on your applicator, regulating the rate, would likely be a great system to even out any yellow spots in the corn and save money where extra nitrogen isn't needed. We collected some water samples this spring from three different tile outlets after a two-inch rainfall. Uh, we probably had six, eight inches in the 10 days before that, so the ground was already, excuse me, already pretty saturated. Site one is corn we hope will yield I think I got 225, but I jumped these 25 bushel because I think we're going to get there. The way things look pretty good this year, so we jumped that uh, 250 bushel. And uh, site three hasn't had any fertilizer. That's that's a big soybean field. Um, and then uh, site three is is uh, a cornfield that we're estimated to go 225, but now we got we figuring might yeah. Okay, and that had 113 pounds of fertilizer and applied. And I guess my question here is if, if no fertilizer for site two has 9.6 milligrams per liter nitrate in solution, apparently from mineralization, how significant is that compared to the 13.1 and 18.5 samples? And uh, over 90% of the tile water drained from our field stays on our property either soaking back into the ground from back through the tile and back in the ground as we usually run two and a half, three feet deep, or empties into one of our earthen dams. This is a study that I've often used in presentations on phosphorus. I wish I could find where I got it so I could reference the source. But uh, basically what I'm, I'm gonna read this to you and then Go on, phosphorus from mycorrhizal fungi study. The researchers used soil with no phosphorus to accurately measure the difference in fertilizer phosphorus needed. 
dividing the soil into two trials. One corn trial, they made sure there was no arbuscule mycorrhizal fungi living in the soil. The other trial, a healthy population of fungi was propagated. They applied phosphorus to achieve the same growth and yield from both trials. The trial with the mycorrhizal fungi needed one-fifth as much applied phosphorus fertilizer as a trial with no fungi for the same yield. We've been told that if there is plentiful supply of phosphorus for a young corn plant during early development, the plant often will reject mycorrhizal fungi's attempts to form a symbiotic relationship with the plant. Trying to manage soil for healthy mycorrhizal fungi populations significantly changes both where and how much added phosphorus fertility we are applying to a field. We now try to limit phosphorus applied to the top, in the top two to four inches to no more than 16 pounds actual, while strip-till application six inches deep for soil balancing applications are used. We feel this is our best choice economically and environmentally and for plants access to phosphorus under difficult weather conditions. For, for potassium, not burying crop residue when doing no-till or strip-till keeps a lot of recycled potassium on the surface due to its high level in the outer hard uh, to decompose portions of the crop residue. Uh, when we, we feel by strip-tilling applied potassium and in a band helps keep potassium more available as it raises base saturation in that band area and also the soil of deeper depth is less likely to dry out as potassium is only available in, when it goes into solution. We'll get back to the discussion shortly, but I want to again recognize Totally Tubular Manufacturing for supporting this podcast. Totally Tubular Planter Application Products provide precise placement of starter fertilizer below the seedbed to optimize nutrient uptake and effectiveness. Awarded No-Till Farmers Fertilizer Application Product of the Year four years straight, Totally Tubular Systems are durable, dependable, and deliver accurate placement of starter fertilizer to complement your fertilizer management strategies. Visit them at totally-tubular.net for more information or call them today at 888-200-3012. And for a limited time, you can receive a 15% discount on full registration to attend the 2017 National Strip Tillage Conference, courtesy of Totally Tubular. Visit striptillfarmer.com tubular to take advantage of this special offer available to listeners until June 30th. Reflecting on Rod's comments so far, he talked about how healthy soils function very much the same as a pair of lungs. They exhale spent biologic gases and take in fresh oxygen. And he adds that tillage has always been a short-term fix of oxygen that mineralizes carbon and degrades the soil. But without new organic matter, soils become unable to breathe. Suffocating the soil isn't an advisable practice, but Summerfield notes that where there is less oxygen naturally available, soils will require more invasive tillage to physically create poor space for root development and for air and water to be held in the soil. So in a sense, this gets soils addicted to tillage. 
Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Rod Summerfield on the benefits of consistent biological breakdown to improve natural soil structure and water infiltration. When humans began growing their food, they learned that tilling the soil grew better crops because increased mineralization from the tillage was providing more nutrients. Unfortunately, they didn't understand that soil organic matter these nutrients were coming from were not being replaced and in time the soil no longer produced. Even today, people have been slow to learn that for productive soils to become sustainable, we need to recycle the nutrients in the plant residue back into the soil as carbon chains. Restoring natural tilth is a result of residue management designed to recycle carbon and other nutrients back to the soil. When residue is buried and mineralized all at once, it is like having fresh air to breathe and all you can eat from, say, Thanksgiving to Christmas, and then having to survive on stale air and little food till the next Thanksgiving for the life in the soil. Completing decomposition to create humus is very important because it restores the soil structure, renewing biochemistry that has been lost in mineralization or erosion. And this is my artwork, so Bear with me, but this is basically what a soil humus particle will look like. Uh, half or a portion of it will be unconverted with microbes still living in it. Uh, the three main components of humus are uh, fulvic acid, humic acid, and human. And for soil structure, the two acids are the most important. This is building soil structure. Uh, a microaggregate is the primary building block of natural soil structure. They form when strong negative charges in the fulvic and humic acid components of humus it attracts a positive charge of covalent cations like calcium or magnesium. Then the, the other positive charge will attach to a small clay particle. The humus particles become encased in a microbe impenetrable covering that helps protect the humus from mineralization. When my, these microaggregates are like the bricks in the wall of a building. Mortaring these microaggregates together are natural glues secreted by plant roots, soil fungi, and earthworms. These large aggregates are called PEDs. Even larger aggregates can now form, held together by a cargo net-like intertwining of root hairs and fungal hyphae around and through the PEDs. These large aggregates are necessary in soil to provide larger spaces in the air and water called macropores. These are the spaces you, that you can see with your eye. The large pore spaces allow healthy respiration of air and the infiltration of rain. In September 2010, the Zumbo River watershed, our farm is part of, experienced a major flood event. The rainfall in much of the watershed was measured up to 13 inches. This picture is of Zumbro Falls, the next town downstream from our farm. At Flood's Crest, only the top part of the post office flag was above the water as flood damage reached the set into the second story of buildings on Main Street. Uh, this is an area view of part of our farm. When the rain finally stopped after having dumped 13 inches of rain from our rain gauge, I went out to check on an earthen conservation dam I had built in 1988. The structure takes in runoff from 129 acres, about 110 of which are crop-by-crop fields. 
The dam has a capacity of five acre feet of water up to the spillway. And I remember before we farmed this way, we had probably three events of six, seven inches where the water went over the spillway for at least half a day, probably a foot deep by 20 feet wide. So I went out fearing that this uh, dam maybe had been damaged. And when I got out to the dam, the water was right at the crest of the spillway, but never went over the spillway. All the water that came from that 129 acres was metered through a 15 inch, 100 foot long culvert. So I did the math. Well, here, I'll, the ground was saturated. Harvested was, was delayed until ground froze hard enough to support machinery. Yet even with that huge amount of precipitation, we saw little soil erosion on our farm. The runoff waters from our land added little to the problems downstream. It is said that a healthy soil will infiltrate 85% of the rain, while an unhealthy soil will only infiltrate 15% of a rain. I've done the math to demonstrate how having healthy soils made having the runoff come through a culvert was possible. One acre inch of rain equals 27,000 gallons. With 13 inches of rain, that's 353,000 gallons times 129 acres is 45.5 million gallons of water fell on that 129 acres. With 15% of runoff, that amounts to 6.8 million gallons. In contrast, with 85% runoff, you have 38.7 million gallons. The water held by, back by the dam was 1.6 million gallons. And the amount of water that can go through a 15-inch, 100-foot-long culvert is 7.3 million gallons. So that 6.8 easily went through the 7.3, or through the 15-inch uh, culvert. The difference between 15 and 85% was 31.9 million gallons because of having healthy soil. Now all our ground was similar, we just, there was no way to measure the uh, we've been promoting the benefits of regenerative ag agriculture for over a decade. When we talked to other farmers, they often didn't want to hear what it, that was possible to farm properly without their beloved tillage. Mineralizing the carbon from soil has degraded its structure. Many producers don't realize there is a problem as they have never farmed a healthy soil. So they have no idea of any difference. Regenerating a soil back to natural tilth is not easy undertaking. We have long felt that if someone inexperienced with the changes that need to happen in the soil before healthy soil was able to work naturally had better information and support before attempting this, they would be better prepared for this transitional period. And we believe they would be able to pass, you know, complete the, the transition. Um, okay. Until the advantages become evident. Okay, this this isn't instantaneous. I mean, the, you didn't take all the carbon out in a few years. I mean, you farm. It probably took a 40, 100 years before soils really started being degraded. So you're not going to do it overnight. Going to regenerative agriculture. There's a transition that that has to take place, the, where things actually are probably gonna be a little bit worse, and that's one place that strip tail really helps because you're able to provide some man-made tillage. And we just felt that uh, 
nobody was out helping people understand that that's what it took to get to this level. And uh, we had some friends and they, uh, that believed in this also, and, and they helped join with us to do this. This is one of them. This is our friend and mentor, Dr. William P. Beckman. Bill is a world-renowned agronomist, having designed, helped create, and for many years was the principal agronomist for the commercial sweet corn industry outside of North America. Basically, he got sent out to the rest of the world to create the commercial sweet corn industry, as before that, they were pretty much importing it all from either us or Canada. Um, his, Bill's job was to profitably produce sweet corn on every different, in very different soils all over the world. In Europe, some of the fields had been farmed continuously for thousands of years. Many were little more than stone quarries where the topsoil had all eroded away. Others had deep soils, but continuous mineralization of soil, organic matter without regeneration meant this, if there was any organic matter, it was all human and, and the soils wouldn't aggregate. Uh, when they would plow these soils, they would turn over like slabs of a kitchen table. They would just, and then they would hit them with huge discs and rototillers and, and uh, Bill talks about, he, he would go and try to push a, you know, a penetrometer or whatever into the ground and it would go in a few inches and you couldn't pound it in. The ground was so hard. In, in comparison, uh, he, uh, in Argentina and the pompous soils there where, where they basically had not been degraded at all, he said a lot of times they would simply put the seed in the ground, nothing else, and grow just tremendous sweet corn. That's all they had to do was farm it and plant seed and didn't need anything else. Uh, Bill is one of the first people to design a twin row concept corn planter. He hauled a two-row twin row he and a friend built in the, back, in the back of his pickup to pretty much every university in the Midwest, down to the Gulf in like Louisiana and Texas, and then out to the West Coast and states. And uh, he said that never was he beat in the, in the university's trials. He always did as good, and in some of the trials, he produced up to 50 bushel more. Our hometown was founded as a wheat milling center. Back in the late 1800s, the Cooper Mill, the barrel-making mill in town, needed to make 1,000 oak barrels every day for the area flour mills. The last mill dam in town was built in 1900. Um, the wheat basically had left away, but they were trying to mill barley and stuff in the area. But uh, in 2000, the DNR wanted the fish to swim upstream, so they come in and took the dam out, but they didn't really do anything about other than take the dam out and build a bridge. So the first high water, all that sediment in the former mill pond just headed on down to the Gulf. There was thousands of tons. I, uh, I had an event here a few years ago, and I had the area soil scientists uh, do cores. He went down like 17, 18 feet and he told me that that never in all his schooling ever had he ever seen soil that deep and rich, but that was all soil from the late 1800s, early 1900s. It was just, he said, it was just unbelievable. Besides um, mentoring individual producers, we have done PowerPoint presentations for NRCS soil health training, cover crop centered soil water conservation district landowner meetings, 
soil and water health seminars for different area watershed partnerships, sustainability through soil regeneration during climate change for land stewardship project, along with general health presentations for groups like 4-H and others. Uh, we've also been facilitators for, like I said, the water quality events like H3, Healthy Soils, Healthy Waters, Healthy Communities, along with hosting bus tours to our farm. Here are some ladies learning how to recognize a healthy soil that came to our farm on a Women's Food and Agriculture Network bus tour on June 20th, 2014. The gentleman in the yellow shirt there in the middle is Mark Mueller. He's the Mississippi River Officer for the McKnight Foundation Philanthropy. Mark asked us in the spring of 2014 if we would host the Foundation's Board of Directors for a soil health presentation. The board was going to be on a tour of Southeast Minnesota on August 14, 2014. That was, we wanted to come here to last year's uh, event in Cedar Rapids, but this kind of preempted it, especially when uh, about a month, month and a half before Mark showed up and he says, oh, by the way, the daughter of the McKnights, she's going to come and with some of her family, and she invited her friends, the Waltons. It took me a while to understand that the Waltons were several generations of the Sam Walton family. And uh, so we kind of worked on putting every blade of grass in place rather than come down last year. Uh, the box there is a terrarium that Rick built and then I filled with soil. We had, during the prevent plant at time, we did some tiling, but we ran up to the bean field and didn't want to wreck the beans, so then when the when the beans were off, then we extended the tile the rest of the way up to the top of the hill. And so while he was tiling, I took the soil out, laid it out, and then put it in this terrarium uh, as close as I could, you know, for the soil profile. And I also was some cover crops from the field in, in here. And uh, I put in, I don't know, a couple dozen large night crawlers that I, that I had around. And, and uh, one of the things that we use this to demonstrate, and what we'll do is we'll pour water all the way to the top. I mean, we throw the water, and we have a you know one of four-gallon shotgun cans, and I throw it in, and you can see through. There's stuff floating in there, but the soil doesn't go into suspension at all. And I don't know if you can see this water here on the side running out, but it'll run all that four gallons to go through that, mostly following the bio channels that the earthworms make in there. And it'll run out the bottom here, and you could fill a glass, a drinking glass with it, and if nobody knew you did this, they'd drink it. It's that clear. There's, there's no soil and suspension in that. Another thing about this, when we first put this in, it, you can see how it looks dark, bottom to top. The bottom four inches of this were fine yellow clay. And by this time, that was done in about mid-October, the fall before, and by this time, them earthworms, I kept feeding them hairy vetch, dried hairy vetch, and they really love that stuff. The topsoil and the bottom soil, you couldn't tell the difference. They converted all that bottom soil into a horizon, just like they just, they go up and feed, they go down there, and they leave it behind, go back up, feed, and they just kept turning that soil over, and, and that's what we call growing soil. Regenerative agriculture is growing your soil.
thank you, Rod, for sharing your passion and adoption of a regenerative approach to rebuilding your strip-till soils. And again, we'd like to recognize and thank Totally Tubular Manufacturing for supporting this Strip-Till Farmer podcast. And I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast series in iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when upcoming episodes are released. And I'd encourage you to also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free Strip-Till Strategies e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on June 15th for the next episode in our 2017 podcast series, a candid conversation with DeForest, Wisconsin strip-tiller Mark Schrader on implementing progressive precision practices to boost strip-till yields. For Rod Summerfield, Totally Tubular Manufacturing, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jackson Licka. Thanks for listening. <laughs>